Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. So I haven't been watching the news. Has anything interesting happened this week? (laughs) I have made a uh, conscious decision not to share my opinion of this week's events with you from the pulpit. Certainly I have opinions, but they are no more valid than any of your opinions. And so it doesn't seem fair that just because... I am the loudest, best-lit person in the room that I ought to be able to impose my opinions on you all. My job, our purpose for gathering here on Sunday mornings is to look at the Word of God and to understand what God has said. Providentially, last Sunday, we began looking at the book of Daniel and the remarkable way that Daniel, through the sovereignty of God, was able to prophesy the coming kingdoms that were going to rise in the Middle East, particularly those kingdoms that were going to hold sway over Jerusalem. Well, and over Israel generally, because I should count Assyria in there. And then on Wednesday night... Again, just providentially, we didn't plan any of it this way. We were looking at God's control over Gentile nations and how God raises up Gentile nations and how God takes down Gentile nations, how he raises up kings and how he takes down kings and how that is all up to him. And then we're also reminded in the Bible repeatedly that the kingdoms of this world, while under the complete sovereignty of God who is in control of all things, God uses Satan in order to accomplish the rise and fall of these various nations. Let's start today by turning to Luke 4. We're only going to read a few verses out of Luke 4. You know this event. This is after Jesus' baptism, when he was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And we're really going to concentrate on one particular exchange between Satan and Jesus in preparation for what we're going to look at this morning out of the book of Daniel. But whether we're talking about Daniel, whether we're talking about the New Testament, whether we're talking about the things that we read out of 2 Thessalonians 2 last week, or whether we're looking at Jesus himself speaking, there is a theme to it that I don't want you all to miss. Because if we're being strictly biblical, we have to understand that the kingdoms of this sinful world are still sinful kingdoms that are still demonically controlled. And just because we have been so very fortunate in this nation, just because we have lived during a time that was in many ways the zenith of American history, 
just because we've been comfortable, that doesn't mean that the whole world has been as comfortable as we have. America is not the whole world. The whole world has suffered through multiple different kingdoms that have risen and that have fallen, and they've gone through the course of history and the course of time. There was never anything like Babylon. There was a moment when people thought that Babylon was impregnable and would never fall, a kingdom of kingdoms, until God decided to take it down, and the Medo-Persians took it over. So don't get the impression that just because things are not happening the way we would prefer politically here in America, don't get the impression that that is the whole world. And secondly, don't get the impression that God's not still in control. We're reading. We have been reading. We are going to read this morning. God has already told us what the end result is going to be. And for weeks and weeks and years and years, I've been saying to you all, cheer up, saints. It's going to get worse. And so then if it does get worse, that's just bringing us closer to the inevitable event of the return of Jesus Christ. And I'm of the opinion, whatever gets Jesus here is good with me. Amen. So, people by and large, Christians by and large, they all anticipate, they all look forward to the coming of Christ. And they want to see the coming of Christ. They long for the coming of Christ. They just don't want to live through the events that lead to it. Now, I'm not saying that these particular events that we're seeing right at this moment in America are necessarily the events that are going to lead to the return of Christ, but I know that everything that is happening in this world is leading inexorably to the coming of Christ. So let's get some perspective here from Christ. Luke chapter 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan after he had been baptized, and he was led about by the Spirit into the wilderness. So it was the Spirit of God that led him to the temptation he's about to undergo. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when those days had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God... Tell this stone to become bread. Of course, you'll notice that Satan poses the question in the form of a hypothetical. If you are God, then do this. In other words, if you don't do this, that's just evidence that you're not the son of God. So if you are the son of God, do a miracle. Make some bread. Of course, Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus responds to Satan by the word of God. He quotes the word of God to Satan. That is the best defense, by the way, to the evils of this world, is to respond to the evils of this world with the word of God. Because that is the very essence of what faith is. Faith is standing on the word of God and accounting it as more true than your circumstances. The word of God still stands firm. Jesus used it. To respond to Satan. Then look at the next verse. Verse 5. And Satan led him. So Satan led Jesus. 
led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. All the kingdoms of the world throughout the history of time. In a moment of time, these are the great kingdoms, these are the lesser kingdoms, these are the kingdoms of the earth. And we know that Jesus intends ultimately to create his kingdom where he is going to rule over the nations of the earth. That's exactly what we saw last week, that there was going to be a succession of kingdoms until a stone from heaven came down, crushed all those kingdoms, destroyed all those kingdoms, and set up a kingdom that will never end. Okay, that's in the scripture. That means Satan knows it too. And Satan says... See all the kingdoms of the world? He led him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and said to him, I will give you all this domain and all of its glory because it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whoever I wish. That's why he's referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Notice that Jesus does not argue with him and say, what are you, joking? You, you, you don't own the kingdoms of the world. Satan knows who he's talking to. He knows this is the very son of God he's speaking to. And he says, I'm in charge of the kingdoms of this world. And I give the kingdoms of this world to whoever I want to give it to. And I'll give it to you if you'll just worship me. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and all its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus' response in verse 8 is very, very interesting, because not only does he answer with scripture, but notice that his response is to the notion of worshiping Satan. He corrects Satan and says, God alone deserves worship, but what he doesn't do is argue with him about the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world belong to Satan. And it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's what I wanted to concentrate on. Because this morning out of the book of Daniel, what we're going to see is an angel of the Lord coming to Daniel and saying, I couldn't get to you for 21 days because I was fighting the prince of Persia. And he's not speaking about a physical prince of Persia. He wasn't talking about Cyrus. He wasn't talking about any human being. He was saying the demonic force that drives the Medo-Persian Empire, that demonic force in the heavenlies resisted me as I was coming to bring you the word of God. Now, what does that mean for us? Here's what's really important, and I'm, I'm going to give you the takeaway right now, so that if you've got somewhere to be, if you've got to go, then you're going to have the takeaway on your way out the door. The takeaway is, God is sovereignly in charge, and Satan can only do what God allows him to do. 
you see it time and time again where Satan desires to do things, but he has to be given permission, whether you're looking at the book of Job or whether you're looking at the demon that took the demoniac of the Gadarenes and then came out and wanted the pigs, they still had to ask Jesus. You see it time and time again that God is in control and that his foot soldier is Satan who is accomplishing what God intends for him to accomplish. You want me to prove it to you? Sure, I will. Book of Revelation. You get to the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 20. Where does Satan end up? Lake of fire. Lake of fire. After a thousand years of being held in the abyss. Does he get to argue with any of that? Nope. God does it anyway. Why? Because God has all the power. He's the almighty. He's El Shaddai. He's the all-powerful one. When he's done with Satan, when he doesn't want Satan active in the world anymore, he puts him in the abyss, puts a seal on him specifically so that he can't deceive the nations anymore. That's what the Bible says. So when Satan was in the garden, which by the way, how did Satan get in the garden? If God had wanted to keep Satan out of the garden, couldn't he have? Yes. Sure he could have. And by the way, if you don't want human beings to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't put it in the garden. I can figure that out. So that means God could figure that out. Which means that God not only created the temptation, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he also allowed the tempter into his garden. And then after he deceived Eve, and Eve says to Adam, here, eat with me. After that all takes place, God could have instantly said to Satan, now that you've done that, I'm putting you in the lake of fire. Now that you did that, I'm going to put you in the abyss and put a seal on it so that you don't deceive human beings anymore. God didn't do any of that. Why? Because, as I said, Satan is God's foot soldier accomplishing the things that God himself has determined are going to be accomplished in this world. There had to be sinners. There had to be fallen people in order for salvation to be utterly by grace so that Christ himself would get all the glory in saving wretched, depraved, sinful people. This is all part of God's divine plan. So never forget, here's your takeaway, never forget that you are in the hands of a sovereign God who does whatever he wants to do anytime he wants to do it. And all we can do is bow the knee to whatever it is that he does in this world. All we can do is admit that this is God. This is the work of God. This is the action of God. So whether we're talking about American elections or whether we're talking about the history of the world or whether we're talking about the eschatological future of the world, it's all God. It's all God's plan. Your job, why you exist, is to bow down in front of him and worship him for doing whatever it is he chooses to do. All right, I think that was adequate introduction. We're going to continue in the book of Daniel. Last week, what we saw was that Nebuchadnezzar had the dream first of the statue, and then Daniel interpreted the dream and the statue. You're the head of gold. Then there's going to be another kingdom after you, inferior to you, shoulders and sides of silver, 
Then Daniel explains to us, that's the Medo-Persian Empire. Then the belly of brass, which is the Grecian kingdom. Then there were the legs of iron, which is the Roman Empire. And then this ten-toed nation, loose confederation, pottery and iron not really mixing together. But during the days of those kings, there's going to rise up a little horn. There's going to rise up a leader who is going to take three of them by force. The other seven are going to give him the authority. And it is during the time of those ten kings that Christ returns, that there is a rock that comes down out of heaven, smashes the ten toes, and then all the other elements fall behind the ten toes. The legs fall, and the belly falls, and the shoulders fall, and the head comes down, and all the kingdoms of this world are described as crushed, crushed like fine powder until they blow away in the wind, and there is only one kingdom remaining, the kingdom of Christ. Then Daniel gives us a vision with animals. And he sees a lion, and then he sees a bear lifted up on one side. After that, he sees a leopard with wings, and then he sees the nondescript beast. He doesn't describe that beast, doesn't give him an animal name, just simply says that he's dreadful and terrible, and that he goes out and conquers and destroys. And it's during the time of that nondescript beast that Christ returns, that Christ comes back. So I said to you last week, the reason that we know that that particular amalgam of kingdoms has not occurred on planet Earth yet, it's that Jesus isn't back yet. Because Jesus comes back during the time of that confederation of ten nations. So the basic details of what we learned last week are the kingdoms from Daniel forward are Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, Medo-Persia, which is the silver shoulders or the bear lifted up on one side. Greece is the belly of brass or the leopard with wings. And then the succession to the nondescript beast leaps over Rome right to this nondescript beast that has ten horns and ten toes. We're going to see him again this morning. And in the times of those kings, there's one who's going to rise, who's going to speak out great blasphemies against the great God, and it is during his reign that Christ returns. That should catch everybody up to where we were last week. Now, earlier I said five kingdoms, and then I adjusted it, and I said, well, six, well, okay, actually seven. There are actually seven historic kingdoms named in the Bible that ever persecuted God's people Israel. The nation of Israel was constructed, grew up, became a great people during the Egyptian captivity. So the Egyptian slavery is counted as the first succession of nations that ever persecuted Israel. After that is Assyria. It was the Assyrian Empire that takes the northern ten tribes into captivity. After that is Babylon. It is Babylon that takes Jerusalem into captivity for 70 years. That's what Isaiah was predicting for Jerusalem. That's the time of Jeremiah. That's the time of Daniel. That's the time frame that we're in as we're reading from Daniel. And then Medo-Persia. And then Greece. 
and then Rome, and then the nondescript kingdom. That's seven altogether. What a surprise, as often as the Bible speaks in sevens, that God also says that in human history there are going to be seven kingdoms that persecute his people. What does that show you? Shows you he's in control. Even though these are satanically inspired kingdoms, it is still God who is in control of this happening and allowing it to happen. And so this is a tough one for people sometimes theologically to get a hold of. That sovereign God allows terrible things to happen on the planet to serve his ultimate greater purpose. But let me demonstrate that to you. The ultimate example of that is never in human history has anything worse ever happened than the fact that evil, sinful, depraved men killed the very Son of God. That's about as bad as it gets. They tortured him. They beat him. They plucked out his beard. They mocked him. They punched him in the face. They nailed him to a chunk of wood with a crown of thorns down into his brow till he was bleeding into his eyes, till the skin was ripped off his back. And then they nailed him to a cross and left him out in the sun to die. Human beings don't get more depraved than that. And what did Jesus do to inspire that kind of hatred? Nothing. He himself said, they're going to hate you without a cause. They hate me without a cause. They had no cause. All he did was go about doing good. That is the worst single thing that ever happened on planet Earth. Oh, and it's the best thing that ever happened on planet Earth. From God's perspective, that was the salvation of all his people. That was the redemption of all his people. So at the very same time that this incredible evil was taking place, the incredible, good, gracious qualities of an all-loving God were also taking place, working through and dominating the end result of the worst thing that ever happened on planet Earth. Okay, so if you can keep that perspective, you can realize that the terrible things that happen here on planet Earth, whatever they are, whether it's an election that didn't go your way, or whether it is a cancer on a child, or whether it is the sudden loss of a loved one, whether it's the sudden financial destruction of the company that you built. I'm just trying to think of bad things that can happen. Through all those bad things that might happen, God does not fall off the throne. God does not go, what? I didn't mean for that to happen. He's not surprised by any of it. It all falls under the jurisdiction of an absolutely sovereign God who enters into the evil of this world to ultimately work his good. Evil things are the history of planet Earth. As you read the history of planet Earth, it is nothing but evil continually. And it's leading to the best thing that ever happened, which is the return of Christ. So God is entering into all of these things, and if you belong to Christ, and if Christ is in you, then despite the evil of this world, you're going to be okay. He's going to get you through it, which is why we would read things like Jesus saying, 
Don't fear men, because what can men do to you? All they can do is kill you. Fear God, who can kill the body and the soul, cast you into hell. He says, worship that God. Fear that God. Reverence that God. Do not fear human beings who can do nothing more than send you home. I'm still introducing, I think. Turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 is going to continue to narrow the focus that we've been seeing on the succession of five kingdoms. It's going to narrow it down to two particular ones. Now, this vision occurred during the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So that's actually two years after the vision in chapter 7 that we looked at last week. We're going to start reading from the third verse as Daniel becomes even more specific about Middle Eastern history in advance. Never forget, and I alluded to this earlier, sometimes we think that our lifetime, our experience, how we're living in America at this moment, because we're comfortable, we start thinking that this is the world experience. And it's not. And we look back at Middle Eastern history and we think, well, that's just history, so of course Daniel would know that. It's old history. But it was all future to Daniel. He was prophesying all of it. So the more detail I demonstrate to you here, the more you see the absolute sovereign hand of God, who not only declares that these things are going to happen, but then goes about using his almighty power to actually make these things happen. And think about that for just a moment, because you're talking about millions of people running around with their supposed free will to do whatever it is they want to do, and yet they all end up doing exactly what brings about the very things that God said were going to happen. So God is sovereignly in control over all the events of human history, and I want you to marvel at what Daniel is about to tell you in detail, future to him, about what's going to happen. We open history books now and we go, yeah, that happened. But he wrote it down before it happened with astounding accuracy. Daniel 8, starting to read at verse 3. I am finally, finally done introducing, I do believe. Then I lifted up my eyes and I looked and behold a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long but one was longer than the other and that longer one was coming up last. I'll interpret that real quickly for you because Daniel's going to do it in a moment. But that is exactly what happened in Medo-Persia. The latter king, the Persian king, Cyrus, came up after Darius, the Median king. And yet he became more powerful. That was what Daniel saw in a vision, that the horn that came up last became more powerful, a longer horn. And I saw that ram with those two powerful horns budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast was able to stand before him. 
none of the other beasts, which means no other kingdoms, could stand before him. Nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat. Some will say a shaggy goat. But a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had one conspicuous horn between his eyes, a unicorn goat. But whereas the Medo-Persian empire had two horns because it had two kings and two leaders, this kingdom behind it has one dominant leader. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and he shattered his two horns. In other words, the goat ends up destroying the power of the two horns, the two kings of the Median and Persian empires. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground, and he trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from the goat's power. And then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he became mighty, his large horn was broken, and in its place, in the place of that broken horn, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, west. Okay, now I'm going to tell you in advance that exactly happened in human history. The goat with the notable horn is the Grecian Empire and its first king, Alexander the Great. Daniel's going to interpret it for us. I'm not making anything up. Alexander the Great, according to best legend, in his early 30s, wept outside the gates of Babylon because there were no more worlds to conquer. Makes you feel like, what have I done with my life? But then he contracted a disease, may have been pneumonia, he died. When he died, even though he had a very young son, his son did not assume the throne or assume the power because of all kinds of Middle Eastern chicanery that we won't go into at the moment. And as a consequence, Alexander's kingdom was divided up among his four generals. And they were divided, ironically, north, south, east, and west. And the king of the north was Seleucus Nicator, and so history ever since has referred to that northern empire as the Seleucid Empire. South of the Seleucid Empire is the Ptolemaic Empire. That's referred to as the king of the south in the book of Daniel. The Ptolemaic Empire is pretty much all of northern Egypt down into Africa a fair ways. The Seleucid Empire is very specifically talked about in the book of Daniel because that's the empire that takes up the Middle East, including God's people Israel, because that is always the central aspect of everything that God is predicting about these empires to come. And it is out of one of them, these four horns, these four kingdoms, these four scattered kingdoms, it is out of one of them that came forth 
a rather small horn. How many times now have we seen that phrase, the little horn? The little horn. We should be familiar with it by now. Daniel has just told us where the little horn is going to come from. Out of one of the empires that are dominated by these four generals after Alexander the Great died. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. This is what he did. He grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Okay, now we're not talking about human beings at this point. We're not saying that there is some human being who lifted himself all the way up to heaven. We know that all the way back at the Tower of Babel, they attempted that, and God didn't allow that to happen. And yet this one, who we already have determined last week, is demonically inspired, is going to try to raise himself up to heaven. And then we find out that part of his downfall was that some of the stars also fell to the earth. Now, in order to explain that phrase, and in order to interpret that phrase, if you would, Tom, look up Revelation 12. You're going to read verse 3 and 4 for us. And we're going to learn there in Revelation 12, 3 and 4, that when Satan fell from heaven, he took a third of the stars of heaven with him. That's why we say that a third of the angels fell with Satan and became what we know as demons. They were angelic fallen creatures. You got it there, Tom? Yes. Read it for us, if you would. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. Hold on. How many of what? Seven heads and ten horns. Isn't that surprising that it just happens to be those numbers? What are the seven heads? Oh, yeah, we already named them, the seven kingdoms that ever oppressed Israel. Ten horns. Hmm. Ten nation confederacy. Ten. Okay, keep reading. It's all making sense. And by the way, it's demonically inspired, satanically inspired by the great red dragon. Go ahead. Have I interrupted you enough times yet? <laughs> okay. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Seven diadems, seven crowns. Why would he have seven crowns? Because it's seven kingdoms. Oh, yeah. Okay, keep going. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Okay, the woman who is about to give birth is Mary giving birth to Christ, or it could be Israel in figure who resulted in bringing Christ to the earth, and Satan was trying to devour that child. We saw that in the temptation in the wilderness. He was trying to destroy Christ, to destroy his work, to get him to worship him instead of worshiping God. Okay, so that helps explain what Daniel was talking about, that Satan, when he fell from heaven took some of the stars from heaven and brought them where? To the earth. That is why the prince of the power of the air still has his minions running around here on earth. But then listen to this description of him. This little horn, 
This one who blasphemes and raises himself up against heaven and takes down stars and makes them fall to the earth, then magnifies himself to be equal with the commander of the host. Who's the commander of the host? It has to be Christ. At very least, it's God who refers to himself as the Lord of hosts, Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies of heaven. And yet this one, who can no longer be referred to as simply a human being, is going to magnify himself to make himself equal with God and Christ, which is why he went to Christ and said, worship me. Because he's still in the business of trying to bring down Christ, anti Christ, which is why he's still in the business of trying to take down Christ and raise himself up. And it is why, and don't miss this, it is why he wants all the worship. And your worship has to be in spirit and in truth toward God alone, informed by the very word of God and the understanding of God through the Holy Spirit. And Satan is going to try to get your worship just off center enough that it is no longer the worship of God, but where he, as prince of the power of the air, is getting some amount of that worship. That's what he's looking for. If he was willing to do it to Christ, he's willing to do it to you. He even magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host. And he removed the regular sacrifice and the place of the sanctuary was thrown down. Where's that? Jerusalem. That has to be Jerusalem. There also has to be a sanctuary to throw down when the ten nation kingdom rises up because he himself is going to stand. This is what we read last week out of 2 Thessalonians 2. He's going to stand in the temple showing himself that he is God. Why? Because he wants to be worshipped as God. And he's going to demonstrate to himself that he is God. And he is going to exalt himself over everything that is called God and everything that is worshipped on the planet. He magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host. He removed the regular sacrifice from him, the sacrifices that belong to the commander of the host. He's going to remove those. And the place of his sanctuary, the sanctuary of the Lord, that's going to be torn down. And on account of transgression, the host is going to be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifices and he will fling truth to the ground and he will perform his will and he will prosper. Okay, that hasn't happened yet. That's coming. The events of this world are leading inexorably toward that. But that has to happen for Christ to come back and establish his kingdom. This this evil, ruthless leader is going to attack the holy city, Jerusalem. He's going to take away every vestige of their religion. But he's also spoken of as waging spiritual warfare, magnifying himself against Christ and against the heavenly host. And so it's obvious that we're not just talking about human beings here. But he also rises out of the place of one of The four generals, I will tell you in advance, he rises out of the Seleucid Empire. That means he rises out of the Middle East. 
If you have books at home, like the Left Behind book that postulates that he's going to be a part of the reconstituted Roman Empire or the reconstituted European Union, that's sheer speculation. That's fantasy that is not Bible. The Bible says he's going to rise out of the Middle East because his primary focus is going to be conquering the people of God at Jerusalem. Which is why the time of tribulation that he oversees is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. A time that Jesus says never was or ever would be again. A time that Daniel says, but they will be delivered out of it. See how all these pieces just fit together? The Bible makes so much sense if you'll just read it. If you'll just pay attention to the details. Continuing in chapter 8. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Well, yeah, that's what we all want to know. Please tell me what this is about. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the river Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. That's helpful. Whoever this commander was, Some people have postulated that perhaps he is a Christophany who is commanding the angels. He commands Gabriel, tell Daniel the interpretation of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. And he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Okay, so when are these things going to occur? At the end. end, When Christ returns. By the way, that's not the only place that is said. It is said several more times, you're going to see a couple of them, that the vision that we're talking about right now pertains to the time of the end. Daniel 8, 19. He said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. There it is again. The angel keeps saying, Daniel, this is all about the end, the eschatological end. When everything wraps up, that's when these things are going to occur. Starting at verse 20. The ram which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the long horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not in his power. Really important. Because Alexander the Great is one of the great oddities of history. It's interesting to read historians trying to explain how it is that such a young man managed to amass such a group of people who would line up behind him to do his bidding, go to war for him to make him the great king, that he could accomplish the overthrow of so many nations that were ostensibly mightier than he is, how did he possibly accomplish by his early 30s everything that he accomplished? Well, we know now and are going to see it that it's because there was a demon in him. He was demonically driven and inspired, which is why he could accomplish those things. But the four generals weren't. 
They didn't have his power. And the angel says so. They're going to rule, but not in his power. He had a power unlike any of those. So the first ram is the symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire. The two horns are the first kings, that's Darius and Cyrus. Just as the latter horn rose higher than the first one, Cyrus overcame Darius or Darius, whichever you prefer, to become the dominant ruler in the kingdom. Historically, the Medo-Persian Empire advanced its dominion in every direction except eastward. After that, Daniel saw a male goat or a buck of the goats who was charging into the west and we're told that he had a single horn that identifies him as the first Grecian king. That's Alexander the Great. So here again, we find Alexander's conquests described as being with great speed and awesome power. And the goat conquered and destroyed the power of the Medo-Persians. History tells us that the Persians had been attacking Grecian-held territories in an effort to expand their own territory and their own influence. But now the time of Alexander's revenge had come. So the goat was moved with tremendous anger, which is exactly what Daniel says. The motivation behind Alexander the Great is also prophesied. Are you getting this? Yes, sir. I mean, it's astounding. God not only says what's going to happen, but he says why. He tells us why it's going to occur. Why was Alexander the Great angry? when he went and attacked the Medo-Persian Empire. Why did he attack with such ferocity? Well, it's because they had been making encroachments into his territory. But that's exactly what Daniel said was going to happen. But then again, at the zenith of his power, at the zenith of Alexander's power, while he's still a young man, as I told you, he dies and his territories are divided up among his four generals, and still, just like Daniel predicted, none of them have the power that was inhabiting Alexander the Great. The large horn is broken, signifying the breaking of his extraordinary power, that power that brought Alexander's reign to a sudden end. Next, Gabriel interpreted the ram and the goat, and as we saw above, he designated four kingdoms they were going to stand out of the Grecian Empire, but not in Alexander's power. That's where we're picking up in verse 23. Keep reading. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. That's interesting language. Insolent, rebellious, not able to be controlled. And skilled in lying, skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. Isn't that interesting? He's going to be demonically inspired. He's going to be powerful, but it's not going to be the power of the human being that does it. It's going to be an extraordinary power that takes over this man. And he will destroy mighty men, and he will destroy the holy people. That, in this context, is Jerusalem and Israel. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. At this very moment, 
Without a political commentary on my part, does anybody feel like this week we may have seen a bit of shrewdness and deceit succeeding? Or is that just me? Yeah. He will magnify himself in his heart. That's exactly what Paul said this little horn is going to do, the Antichrist is going to do, the man of sin, he refers to him. That deceitful man of sin is going to stand in the temple showing himself that he is God. That is exactly what Daniel also said he was going to do. He's going to magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He's not going to wait and have war against the warriors. He's going to wipe out people while they're comfortable, while they're at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. Who's that? Okay, now can you understand why he's referred to as Antichrist? The reason that he carries that nickname is because he is opposed to Christ, the very prince of princes. But good news, after all that bad news, after, at this moment you've got to be thinking, okay, Jim, lighten up, because this is a lot of heavy stuff. But I just want you to realize that this world, even though at the moment seems crazy and 2020 can't end soon enough in my book, even though the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket at this moment, nevertheless, God is in control. Want me to prove it? I'll do it in one phrase. But he will be broken without human agency. There it is. He's not going to be conquered by other humans. He's not going to be conquered by other kings. We already know from Daniel's previous visions how it is that he is conquered. How is he conquered? The return of Christ who is going to slay him with the breath of his mouth. That's Paul's language. He's going to be destroyed but not by human agency. Perhaps next week we will talk a little bit about Antiochus Epiphanes because historically he was the leading contender for satisfying what Daniel predicted here about an evil ruler in the Middle East who would persecute Jerusalem in particular. He even went so far as to sacrifice a pig on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem, thereby desecrating the temple and so after the Maccabean Rebellion, which you can read about in the books of First and Second Maccabees, intertestamental books, after that they had to then ceremonially and physically cleanse the temple all over again. And there was a large, long process in order to cleanse the temple once again. And that is why to this very day the Jews still keep the Festival of Lights. They still keep Hanukkah to celebrate the re-cleansing of the temple. So next time you see your Jewish friends and neighbors keeping Hanukkah, you know that that harkens back to Antiochus Epiphanes. And we probably would have all said, yeah, that's the one. Okay, that's the one. Had it not been for the fact that Jesus walked on the planet and said, now when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the book of Daniel, he cast it out into the future. And Antiochus Epiphanes was 150 years before Jesus was on the planet. And by the way, he never did warfare with Jesus. And so he cannot ultimately be, even though he may be a foreshadow, he can't be the ultimate antichrist to come, especially when you read Paul's statements then 
that cast it out into the future of that one who's going to stand in the temple, be the abomination, show himself that he is God. Am I boring you yet? No. Daniel 8.26 ends by saying, the vision of the evenings and the mornings which you have been told is true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Turn to Daniel 10. We'll go through this real quick and we'll call it a morning. Daniel chapter 10, Daniel's receiving a vision during the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Daniel's been mourning and fasting for three full weeks, 21 days. On the 24th day of the first month, a heavenly messenger comes to visit him. The description of the man is actually so Christological sounding that some, again, speculate that maybe Daniel was speaking to a Christophany. The people that were with Daniel didn't actually see the vision. Instead, a great quaking and fear falls over them, so they flee. They, they go and hide. But Daniel was so overwhelmed that his strength left him, and he fell down on the ground face first. And then a hand touched him and set him up on his knees and the palms of his hands and then ultimately standing up on his feet. That's where we're going to pick up at Daniel 10, verse 11. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling and then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this, how long ago was that? Three weeks, 21 days. From the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard and I was sent in response to your words three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, God heard your prayer. Three weeks ago, your words, your questions, your desire to understand came up before the throne of God and I was sent to you. It took me three weeks to get to you. Why? Was that because of distance? Then he explains why it took him that long. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. That means that the kings of Media and Persia were demonically driven, and the demons that controlled them fought against Michael himself and Gabriel as they were bringing the vision of God to Daniel. There was war in the heavenlies. All I want you to understand is, still going on today, still exists today. We just forget it because we're busy playing Nintendo. We're busy watching TV. We're busy amusing ourselves. Bread and circuses. As long as we've got comfort and as long as we're happy and as long as the wolf is away from the door we don't think about this heavenly battle that is going on 
for the souls of human beings. The devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That was true in Peter's day. It is true today. The devil is still out to claim whoever he can claim. And he is still the prince of the power of the air. And he still has his fallen demonic horde. And he still is in control of the kingdoms of this world, which were given over to him until Christ himself comes back and establishes his own kingdom in righteousness. That's why there's such a huge contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ. Because the kingdoms of this world are sinful and depraved and fallen. And then we're surprised when something depraved happens. It's exactly what ought to happen. It's exactly what sinful, depraved, fallen human beings deserve. And that's why the history of the world is a succession of kings rising up. And then human beings demonstrating that they're really no darn good at self-governance. Which is why God started out with Israel by saying, here's my law. Here's what it looks like. Here's what my righteousness would look like within your society. This is what it would look like. And then they didn't do it. And no one's done it ever since, save Christ. May I add, that is why it's so important to remember that if anybody gets saved at all, it's got to be grace. Amen. It has to be grace and kindness. It has to be as a result of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. It can't be because of anything we as a group ever did or you as an individual ever did because we are fallen, depraved people attempting to govern ourselves. And we can't even govern our own individual behavior well any less the behavior of the millions of the hordes it's no wonder government is corrupt but I'm ranting now <laughs> the kings of Media and Persia were not merely men their great substance their leadership ability the force of their personality was all demonically empowered and controlled a mere mortal is not going to be able to hold back an angelic messenger for 21 days. But then the story goes on. Daniel 10, starting at verse 20. The angel says, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. Remember, Michael came to keep the prince of Persia at bay so that Gabriel could come all the way to Daniel and give him the vision. And now he says, I'm going to go back and Michael and I are going to whip up. That's not the exact phrase he uses. We are going to go conquer the prince of Persia. And then look at the next phrase. It is chilling. And behold, the prince of Grisha is about to come. We're going to go conquer the prince of Persia. And into that vacuum is going to come the next historic demonic force. And that's why Alexander the Great was able to accomplish what he accomplished. It's biblical. Do you not understand why I came to you? I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. 
So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. So having completed his task, after this messenger returns to Michael, that gives us some idea of when he did it because that was the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire. And why did the Medo-Persian Empire fall to Alexander the Great? Because the demonic power, the demonic control shifted from Medo-Persia to Greece. And that's why Greece was able to conquer Medo-Persia. Daniel 11 tells us where this little horn is going to be allowed to conquer. Remember I said that the devil can only do what he's allowed to do? Daniel predicts in advance what areas he's not going to be allowed to conquer. Daniel 11, starting at verse 42, says, Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians are all going to fall at his feet, are all going to fall at his heels. But back in Daniel 11.40, we read, at the end of time, the king of the south, by the way, at the end of time, at the end of time, the king of the south We'll collude with him. Oh, dear. We'll collide with him. That's very different, colluding and colliding. Those are two completely different things. At the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through. And he will also enter the beautiful land. What land is that? That's Jerusalem, and many countries will fall, as we just read. But these will be rescued out of his hand. God in advance saying, I'm going to make sure he doesn't get these. Edom and Moab and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Those are the areas that the Antichrist is not going to be able to conquer. So then Jesus walks on the scene of history. And in Matthew 24, starting at verse 15, he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, when you see that standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Okay, if they flee east, they're going directly into the sea. If they flee west, guess where they're ending up? In the wilderness of Edom and Moab and Ammon. All Jesus has to say is, if you know your Daniel, if you know the abomination that's spoken of through Daniel, then you know the areas that he can't get to. He can't get to Edom and Moab and the sons of Ammon. You're going to be safe if you go there. Even Jesus validates what Daniel has said, but Jesus also just gave the Jews in Jerusalem the way out to be protected through this time of terrible tribulation. Those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must turn back to get his cloak. Woe to you who are pregnant and those of you who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Do I have to stress again who the elect is in that context? It's Israel. And how are they going to be protected through those terrible days when the abomination of desolation sets himself up in the temple? How are they going to survive? Flee to where Daniel already told you to go. Go to Ammon. Go to Moab. Go to Edom. Why? Because Daniel already said that God is going to make sure that he can't get there. It's remarkable stuff. It's beautiful stuff. God's absolute control of human history. Now, the God we're talking about, the God we worship, the God we sing to, the God we pray to, the God who gave us this remarkable word to study, that same God who is in control of bringing up kingdoms and taking down kingdoms, who is in sovereign control of the whole wide world, who has already told you how history is going to wrap up, who has already told you that there will be a kingdom of righteousness when his son comes back to rule from David's throne in Jerusalem, that God who does all that cares about you, loves you, chose you before the foundation of the world, has said to you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So if you come away with nothing else this morning, recognize first the absolute sovereign control of history and humans and nations that God has, and then walk out this door confidently this morning, remembering that the God who's in utter, complete, absolute control is the one who has promised you he's going to take you to his glorious kingdom that he has built for you. And that his son is building that place for you right now. And is going to come back and get his bride and take her home to his father's house. You have a sure guarantee from the one who has all the power, all the control, and who deserves all the worship. Got it? Amen. Now I think... Another week, next week, we need to look at the New Testament references to the Antichrist to come. And then we may probably have to talk about the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ to come. So that's what we're going to do for the next two weeks, ideally two weeks, maybe three. Could be a month and a half. Next year, <laughs> when we, then we're going to continue into our study of the book of Ephesians and Colossians comparing and contrasting those two books. All right? All right. All right. Now, when I say, praise God, that's the God I'm talking about. And you got every reason to praise that God. You got every reason to worship that God. Steve's going to come up. We're going to sing hymn 459. So grab your hymn book. 
Praise his name. He lifted me. Let's sing he lifted me. listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.